expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Refreshed and ready for episode 94 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where I can't help but wonder if Kickstarter was the original name for Viagra. I don't know. I mean, it I, makes sense, right? I mean, I don't know if that would be a funding type situation. I, but, hey. I, I, can you imagine? But can you imagine, like, the board meeting? Like, like just, just, just a pitch meeting for that. Like, got an idea. Okay, what is it? Well, you know how guys can't get it up, right? Yes. Sadly, yes. <laughs> and the guy that says yes does it with those darty eyes where he looks across from him like, yes? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, looks, this is not my problem, and then, but... And then he looks down like, oh. Yeah. And then it's like, well, here's an idea for a pill. And the pill makes men hard. And it's like, what is it? It's like, oh, it's Spider-Man number whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm James with him alongside. The Merc with one arm, Nick Pataglia. And dude, I got to tell you right now, you want to talk about a hot streak? We're on a bit of a hot streak right now. Yeah, we're like that quarterback that's going into the playoffs that's just lighting it up, and nobody wants to see that team in the playoffs. I kind of feel like, you know, we're there. We started 2016 with a really strong uh, show with uh, Brian Wood from Starve, and we got to talk some Star Wars with him because he wrote Star Wars for Dark Horse as well. And it was just it was just a lot of fun because it, it was a little bit different for us too. Well, yeah, I mean, we talked about, like, eating bugs, and I didn't know cricket flour existed until Brian told us. And- uh, don't you kind of want to ask restaurants now when you go there what kind of flour <laughs> they're using just in case? Is it gluten-free? <laughs> Why does my food taste a little chirpy? Right oh, now. I don't understand. Oh, way to bring the show down a whole new level. Hey, I could have done something much worse than that. I you know, know you could have because you're a statistic. <laughs> <laughs> you're the type of guy where you have like your hand hovering over this red nuclear pun button pretty much. And you could just press it anytime. And what I do is I, I slowly motion over it like like that dick that's telling you it could happen at any second but doesn't <laughs> press it kind right, of thing. Right. It's that slow, evil, maniacal, yes. Yes. I have you in the palm of my hands right now. But today, this week, actually, we're going to be diving into the world of Dark Horse Comics, of course, with King Conan. Wolves Beyond the Border, part one of four is actually out right now. And, of course, we're talking with... Mr. Tim Truman, who actually is the writer of King Conan. And I got to tell you, man, this book, yeah. It's yeah, pretty intense, wanna, man. You want to make Conan a bit more of a badass if that's somehow possible? And Tim fucking did it. I mean, the very beginning of the book to me, and we'll get into this, obviously, with him. The beginning hooks me so much in, like, the first few pages where it's like, wow. And I don't want to spoil anything because it's a, re- it's a really nice book. Let's just say it's very... Goodwill hunting bar scene esque kind of, except with violence. Except with violence and and a lot of anger, like yeah. a lot of anger. So, but it's justified. You'll know that if you read King Conan. He's actually been writing uh, Conan stuff for a while too. So, you can't wait to dive into him to that with him. He and I were kind of chatting an email about some other project that he has going on too. We might touch on that as well. He's just a very interesting guy. So, I can't wait to uh, to to talk to him and find out what he's got going on. Exactly, man. But that's going to do it for our intro. But come up next, we're going to pull out our long boxes because what we're reading is come up next right here on Down Nerdy. This is comic book writer Brian Wood, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Well, it's that time, nerds, where we pick out our long boxes and we open them up and we just give ourselves a nice piece of comic because time to discuss what we're reading this week. Of course, as every week, it's brought to you by the fine folks over at Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards on Aragorn Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and the gang and all the great things they have for your nerd heart and the nerds that you love. So, James, I'm going to have you go first this week. What did you read this week? I'm going to preface this by saying, in a weird way, that I think we read the wrong comics this week. You think? And I'm going to tell you why. Because I did Uncanny X-Men number one. And I'll, I'll let you know who the creative team is right now. Cullen Bunn's the writer. Greg Land is the penciler. Jay Leistein is the anchor. Nolan, Wo- Nolan Woodward is the color artist. And VCs Joe Caramanga. Caramanga is the letterer. Now, the reason I say I think we read the wrong comics this week is to me, this feels like a continuation of Cullen Bunn's Magneto run that he had. Really? That I didn't read, but you raved about. Yeah. So basically it starts off where uh, there's this group uh, driving a transporter truck. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to go word for word into the plot, but this is kind of important. So Magneto shows up in the beginning and says, I'm commandeering this cargo. Now, what's in the cargo is important, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I can't not tell you this, because this is kind of important to whether or not you want to grab this book or not. So, basically, the cargo is mutants that are in suspended animation. Wow. So now, are, these, are these, like, big-name mutants, or are these just random mutants? These are kind of random mutants. So, okay. this is not, like, your cream-of-the-crop mutants, but Magneto does have a team... And I can I I can reveal that because they're on the cover. It's M, Sabretooth, Psylocke, and Archangel is the team that are uh, in the Uncanny X Men. Now, there's your typical X Men by play kind of thing, what you'd kind of expect from an X Men comic, where they kind of, in a weird way, with the characters though joking around with each other, because you don't really expect this to be a light-hearted crew. But they're, they're a little more ruthless, but not deadly, too, which is interesting for a crew that's run by Magneto. So they have some control, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is very, especially Sabretooth, and they make well, a big point about that. it's interesting, because they don't sound like they're full-on brotherhood, really, anymore. No, they're definitely not. And there's a reason that Magneto is doing what he's doing, and there's a very conflicted side to him that I think that you'd mentioned when you'd reviewed it a couple of times and you see two different sides of Magneto in this comic so to me that's why it kind of feels like a continuation of that run and now I can't speak enough to how visually striking this book is Greg Land if he's not my favorite X-Men artist he's in the top three because the way that he just the attention to detail in every little act. I mean, the sheen off of Magneto's helmet. Yeah. I mean, come on. Who does that? Who, who gives that much attention to this art? Every little detail is so pristine. And I told Greg Land this when we met him uh, at Tidewater Comic Con last year. It's just, it's so, he, he just puts so much into it. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of love there. Now, the end of this book... They actually, they go through the cycle of explaining, Magneto explains why he's doing what they're doing and what kind of why he put this team together. Right. But at the end of the book, and this is something he and Psylocke discuss during the comic, but that's something I don't want to give away. There's a reveal of who the big bad is going to be at the end of this comic. 
and I think it will excite a lot of X-Men fans. Really? Because they're going kind of deep here. Wow. Okay? So they're br- they're bringing in something that you don't really expect. And, and again, it's it's very Cullen Bond. Let me just put it that way. If you've read <laughs> Cullen's other stuff, then you kind of will know, okay, yeah, this makes sense that they're going this route. But at the same time, I, I really liked the book. But it almost felt like something was missing. Right. Okay? And I don't know... If it's because I didn't read Magneto? Well, I think the thing with Magneto, though, is you got to understand the end of the run, because it happened you know, prior to um, that big arc they had pretty much in the, over the summer. Magneto dies at the end of the Magneto run. Right, so. and they, they preface that in this book. Right. They do. They, they actually make mention of that, and I, I can't say any more than that. They, they, they preface that in here. So oh, well, know then, that that then, is in here. Oh, shit. And maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe. So that's why I'm thinking, okay, if this picks up where that left off, then obviously I'm going to feel like there's a little bit of a hole there. Yeah. And something's missing. So what I would say, for me, this is a pickup. And it's definitely something I want to keep reading because I, I want to know where they're going with it now. But... It's something you want me to read? I kind of feel like if you read it, it yeah. might be a poll for you and anybody that might have read and loved Magneto because you might be more invested into it because it's it's almost like the sequel that you wanted but didn't get. Well, and they also, repackaged it in a different way. Well, like, outside of Carnage, Magneto's probably like my second favorite Marvel villain, so yeah. Yeah, well, he's my favorite. So that's that's one of the reasons right there that I wanted to check this series out because, I'm, I mean, I've got a Magneto pop figure in the Nerd Cave sitting right on top of the TV stand, for God's sake. I mean, <laughs> that, that should tell you all you need to know. He's the only Marvel villain pop that I have so far. Yeah. So, and I'll rectify that. But, no, this is a pickup for me, but if you love Magneto, I would say this could be a poll for you, so that might increase the pickup level a little bit for fans of that series. So I decided this week, James, to do a comic that pretty much it caught my attention, well, our attention from the cover that we saw. And, of course, we're talking about the last contract from Boom Studios. Now, the writer is Ed Brisson. He also did the letters for this as well. That's interesting. And the artist is Lissandro Estherin. Now, here's the plot. So it follows this retired hitman. He's probably about late 70s, early 80s. Picture Clint Eastwood in Grand Torino, but older. Okay. He has the same kind of attitude and everything. So his retired hitman, not only as the man, is pretty much forced back into the game of you know contract killing, when a list of his is leaked by a mysterious broker. So it's, always, it's a kill list. Okay. And the list makes targets out of anyone associated with one of the man's previous jobs. And also, it's the man himself. And in the beginning, there's actually this, th- this scene where you, you know... He has this encounter with this biker, and it's insane. It's fucking insane. This guy is like 80 years old, and he's just, dude, you see the way he is and the way he talks and acts? It's He's a badass. Nice. And so pretty much he fights and protects the list, you know, those who the list exposes, and he wants to also find out the broker, the name of the broker, you know, and person responsible for this. Um, I'll say this, the art, when you first open the page, it doesn't, it's not really eye-settling, but as the book goes on, it gets better. Right. That's, that's interesting. And, yeah, uh, like, for example, like, there's a woman in this, she's just like a, uh, uh, 
a waitress, small, you know, she's only for like one panel, but she looks like a troll, <laughs> and she's not. <laughs> That's a compliment every woman wants to hear. But uh, you know, I mean, you flip flap jacks and pour coffee. You know what do you expect for so yeah, many years. There you go. But anyways, you know the the art. Otherwise, the colors very Jessica Jones purple and pink and blue esque. Interesting. Like picture the opening video opening credits for jessica jones it looks like that they actually have a comic that's kind of like a companion comic that marvel's been uh, giving out for free digitally and that's what it looks like so that's what i'm picturing right now in my head exactly and the thing about this book i love is that the man we don't have his name in the first issue but it's just it catches your eye just how brutal he is first of all you know what he does like for example he shoots a guy the knee and he puts him in the trunk he's like okay if you want to blow your head you know Pretty much, uh, you know, get in the trunk and stuff like that. So he gets in the trunk. Of course, he bleeds out and dies. Yeah, of course. And then he picks up this other guy off the street and says, get in the trunk. He says, oh, Jesus, what's that smell? So he pretty much makes him get in the trunk with a dead corpse. Wow. Yeah. That's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and there's – but then there's a little bit of, of – the way that, that Brisson writes this is a little bit of humor, like subtle – so, like, you know, for example, he the guy he captures, the man captures, uh, he first has him on his knees at gunpoint, and he's talking about some things and, and some background, and the guy just stops and pauses, wait a minute, are you wearing a pajama shirt? Like, and the, and the guy just pretty, <laughs> and, the, and the guy just pushes the gun to his head pretty much closer and stuff like that. And it's just, it's just, it's really subtle, but it's really good. I think you should, wow. you should read it. It's something I think you would enjoy the hell out of. Because it's just, it's really good. It's got that that uh, hitman gritty feel to it. And like I said, the background, the colors, you're gonna be in awe of them because like the mixture of the purples and the pinks and the blues at nighttime. This takes the first issue takes entirely at night. Like just him driving up, pulling up to his house with the tail lights, amazing. It's just, nice. and like I said, the art it evolves. It's not, you know, you you see that you see it at first. And you're like, oh, God, the art's not that great. And then you turn to the next page, like, oh, it's improving, it's improving, and it's improving. So, again, I, this is a pull for me, dude. This, you know what? We This is the 94th episode of this show. Yeah. And I think this is the first time. Now, we've 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 both said that, you know, that we've liked Thomas. We think the other one was like. But this, this is the first time I think we've ever legit recommended the comics that we've read in the same week to each other during the show. Yeah. I don't think this has ever happened before. Like, Hey, you should, you should read this and Exa- the same thing. That's Ex- interesting. Exactly. And that's going to do it for read this week. Again, James reviewed uncanny X-Men. Number one, he said it was a pickup. I did the last contract. Number one from boom. I said, go pick this up, put it in your poll. It's amazing. But come up next. Oh, we're going to be singing and frolicking and riding on horseback because we're going to be discussing the Series 2 premiere of Galavant, and it's coming up next here on Down and Nerdy. This is colorist Tamara Bondola, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Last year we let you know about a certain show, and it was simply known as Galavant. And now we're here for you to give you our review of the beginning of the second season. Oh, God. No, no, no. Right? It's not going to work. Right? It's not no. going to work. That was last year. You didn't win an Emmy for it. You didn't win an uh, Emmy for that last song. No. Copyright ABC. Copyright uh, ABC. <laughs> 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 no, I just remember last year at this time, 
where we were doing the intro. And in the intro, we kind of liked, you know, we kind of just chat a little bit. And yeah. we were talking about Galavant. We were, we, it was one of those shows where you see it. It's a medieval times type musical. We're like, gosh, I really want this to be good. Please be good. And it was so good. Yeah, and I think that here's the thing. As you look at, at Galavant and what we still shocks us to this day is that it's ABC. It's on ABC. Yeah. Yeah. And it's making fun of the shit that made pretty much Disney what it was for the most part. It makes fun of Disney. It makes fun of itself. It makes fun of shows that it's supposed to be competing against. Like, don't watch the Globes of Gold. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that and kind of right in the beginning of the show, too. So. Yeah. And it's one of those shows which I think mean, it continues to where it's aware of its surroundings. It's aware of what it is. But it doesn't do it to where it's like, uh, to where you know, I do it to where it's still special. I don't poke fun at it like right. all the time. Right. And even the dialogue, for example, like you know, and the way that they do, it, of course, they broke it the first hour of Galavant into two episodes, like they did last season. And so, pretty much where it continues now is you know, Richard and Galavant were you know were captured by pirates and they were left by pirates. And I gotta tell you, just the opening song where they're like, "No, it's not gonna work," and it's like. People have pretty much walked the plank because you sing that song, yep. which is, of course, the famous <laughs> intro to the first season. So much. Four people, four pirates walked the plank. You know, <laughs> four pirates. They just walked the plank on their own. On their own. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's such, uh, I just love the show because it's like fourth wall after fourth wall with the show. But like you said, it's not, they don't beat you to death with it, which I love. And the whole amulet thing where they're trying to find oh. a signal and they're holding it up. And then... The friggin' unicorn, Yes! Man. Oh, my God. So oh. Richard and, and Galavant go to this, uh, it's not really, it's, what does Richard say, it's the pre-Renaissance fair? Yeah. And he sees this unicorn. Now, me, my first intention was, and I think, I don't know if you had the same uh, thought as this, James, I'm like, okay, maybe it's going to be one of those plot holes where it's not a real unicorn, and, like, Richard, like, makes a scene because it's, like, a fraud of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, a real unicorn, though. And he goes... And the unicorn's like licking on everything else. It's like, oh, he's like, excuse me, animal handler. He's like, why is this unicorn so friendly? He's like, wow, unicorns are drawn to the, to children and men and uh, men who are pure of body. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, it means a man who hasn't slept with a woman. <laughs> and the funny part about it is, is that the unicorn just pops up everywhere. throughout the entire episode. And it's just here's a, so here's great. Question. Here's a question. Did you at any point see that unicorn and think of the unicorn from the paybacks? I did. I, I that's what's funny is that's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, was Night Night pure of body? <laughs> so we're gonna have to ask Elliot and Donnie about that. I don't know if that's a thing or not. So yeah, oh, we're gonna have to figure that out. But man, there's so many times where you just laugh. Yeah. so hard at this show and there's so many great characters and I love the fact that they're talking about how creepy it is that Isabella has to marry her 12 year old no 11 he's 11 year old cousin even and, more creepier and here's the other thing the jester who was like Magdalena's boy toy yeah. is like the playmate now of, of her cousin yeah. and he's like oh it's so nice to finally talk to an adult yeah, he's playing he's like, like hide and seek and stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been playing hide and seek for months. I know it's castle everywhere, <laughs> and, but it's really funny. Like it's really funny. My only worry though about the show is this: this was my problem with the uh, with the second Muppets movie too. And I don't know what it is about musical sequels or second seasons of certain musicals. The songs don't stick as much. 
Yeah, I agree that definitely the songs weren't as strong for the most part in the well, first episode. Well, they were funny, episode. but I'm talking about, like, you know, first season. I was, I, to this day, I, I was walking around my apartment singing, you know, of course, the intro, and then maybe not the worst thing ever, and, uh, you know. The monks. Uh, we're the monks. The mon- we're the monks, and, you know, one a night kind of thing. And, but here, I, I can't even think of what the title of one of the songs is, other than, uh, what was it, Best Kiss Ever or whatever? Yeah, it was Worst Kiss Ever, Best Kiss Ever kind of going yeah. back and forth. And the other thing was, I thought that the song between Magdalene and Gareth where they were trying to find common ground, I kind of thought was that was a little bit of a play off of Maybe You're Not the Worst Thing Ever. I thought it was, but not as good kind of thing. I mean, I mean, there, it has, I'm not saying it's a bad, it was a bad song. I'm saying, I mean, oh, no. part, part where she's like, listen, like, I like this, I like this. He's like, I like beer, 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 beer. And like, like, it's like, well, she's going off like a different thing. I like massages. I like wine. He's like, I like beer. Uh, uh, yeah, know, it was certainly funny. But you know but... what it was, though? That actually reminded me. I was actually flashback. I was, in a, I was in seventh grade. I was in a play called Cinderella. And actually, one of the songs was called I Want the Wine in My Country. And the end of the king, and the end, the king goes, I want the wine of my country. I want the wine of my country. The wine of my country is beer. And <laughs> it reminded me of that. So I'm like, I think it's funny that you said I was in a play called Cinderella. Like you, like people wouldn't know what the hell Cinderella was. Well, I did it for that reason. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, you have people like that do like, I don't know about you if you ever heard of this play, but I was in a play called Cats. You know, and, and it's like, yes, we all know what cats is. <laughs> Don't you need to have like, like, hold your arm up at the at the elbow or something and dangle your hand to talk? No, I actually like played. That? I actually played a schoolboy. <laughs> and I there, played, there's a reach. Let me tell you, I played a schoolboy. Well, when I was in seventh grade, I was like. 90 pounds and four foot nothing. I, so I looked like a schoolboy. Well, we were in seventh grade, so you kind of, you know. Yeah, and then I was a ballroom dancer That's as well. That's just awesome. Yeah. Um, awesome. Pure wet, probably not so much for you, though. But right? anyways, back to Galavant. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's my only worry about. I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, it's going to be a funny show throughout. throughout. I mean, we were watching the second episode together. We were laughing our balls off pretty much. I mean, it was just as funny yeah, it's as just last that, season. It's just that you fear that some of the songs might not be as memorable. Yeah. Like, they'll be good songs, but not like ones I'm going to be walking around my house outside of like, you know, Best Kiss Ever. Uh, I'm going to probably know, the only thing I know from that song is the uh, the, the chorus, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's pretty yeah. much it. But, I mean, let's talk about some other characters, like Chef, for example, who's back. And you know, that was great with the whole, she's giving him the amulet. And he's like, I've worn this every day. He's like, I've never seen it. You wear it before. Right, exactly. And if you think back to season one, you never saw it. I'm no. sorry. I don't remember seeing it ever. But that's the great thing. And then he's, she sings the song, and he's standing there. And she's like, oh, he's still here. He's like, yeah, you didn't give me a fucking amulet. <laughs> and he literally <laughs> says fucking. Time. But it's blurred. But of course, it's, it's beeped out. It's ABC, so yeah. yeah. But I mean, again, it's really great. Um, but I, I I love the show, man. I mean, the show is, is such a fun way to open the second season. My only thing is, this is a show because of what it's dealing with, and because of the, the time and the story and way it's structured. I can't see it go past this season to maybe even the third. Well, possible. I think that even they're aware that the second season was, is gravy for them anyway. Yeah. And even, even in the initial song, they talk about how it would be a miracle if we get good ratings and it's a show you're probably going to record. And they know, they know that they're, they're on borrowed time right now. But so part of me might, wonders, might as well make the best of it. But part of me wonders if that's not the case at all. What if it Galvan is actually a very popular show but they're just saying that just to that way people do tune in and people. Well, it's a, 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think that it's. I mean, if you look on social media, it's it trends pretty well when it's on. So, oh God, yeah. I mean, and and people do love the songs. I mean, just like, YouTube's another perfect example. You go to a place like YouTube and find out how many plays these songs are getting, or the you know the the scenes are getting, and that tells you right there that this is a very popular show. Unfortunately, that that doesn't always translate for networks and stuff because we've seen plenty of good shows. Constantine, go by the wayside. Um, <laughs> regardless of how or regardless of people how how people feel about it on social media so i just i'm gonna sit back and enjoy it i'm surprised there was a second season too very happy about it and and i think that we're gonna laugh just as much this season as we did last season yeah i mean you know i i mean we gotta talk about this right now before we move on to nerd news the gay bar scene oh my gosh like there the enchanted forest oh Bear was money. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Bear was just money. When I saw that you put a gay bar scene in ABC, I'm like, wow, they really are pushing the envelope for, oh, yeah. for, for this type of television. Oh, like, yeah. Like, you know, because, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, it's on at like... 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. So 8 o'clock Eastern, this is on. It's not 10. Yeah. This is 8. You know what I mean? So, but, but, yeah. But, again, it's probably one of those things where it's like... You know, it's adult humor, but it, it'll probably fly over the kids' heads. You know what I'm saying? Well, but, and that's the other thing. I think ABC kind of looks at what they have and they go, you know what? Let's just do something and let's just do something that's out of character well, for us. Well, they probably look at the fact attention. that they have, like, you know, uh, I can't think of the, the shows Once Upon a Time. And they're like, you know what? We need to make a show that, like, men would like. And, you know, it's once upon a time, you're like, my mom watches that and stuff like that. Yeah. But, like, they're like, we need to make a show that's more dull in, in theme and it's a comedy and total opposite of that. And, of course, they come up with Galavant. And it's a, it's a home run. But, again, you put that scene with the Enchanted Forest, and it's a great scene. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, it, it's – and it, one thing I say, too, is that it wasn't, it wasn't cartoonish at all. It was very grounded and funny as shit. It was cerebral, too, in a weird way. Yeah. Where you really had to pay attention to find the jokes. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, you might hear that and think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I want to have to pay attention to be able to get the jokes. I want to be able to see it and go, ha, yeah, I just, I got that. And then, you of know, course. You don't want it to be too obvious. And then, of course, at the end, we're not going to say what it is because it is actually going to be a big turning point. Richard does something at the end in anger. And you see what it what is. And you think, oh, this is going to get interesting. And something happens at the very tail end. Oh, yeah, That changes the game, too. So that's the other thing I love about this. It's so easy for a show like this to just say to hell with the plot, to hell with any kind of story. We're just going to try to be funny and do some songs and, and that be the end of it. And this show doesn't do that. This show actually has a story structure and a couple of really good plot lines to it, which is I think makes it e- that much even that much better. By the way, spoiler warning, at the tail end, pretty much M. Night Shyamalan comes out, dresses a surf, and says, what a twist! <laughs> Assuming he has that ability. Yes. I don't know if he has that kind of reach. I just don't I, know. I don't know. But uh, let's do our, our ratings real quick for the uh, season two premiere of Galavant. I'll let you go first. Uh, I'm going to give it a seven, only because I agree with you. I think that there are a couple of concerns, and the songs weren't as really catchy and, and memorable as the first season, but I think that's a lot to live up to. I don't really think that's a criticism. They were still funny. They were still good, but it's not that, like they said in the beginning, not the earworm that you kind of want it to be to people to get people singing it outside of the show, so I'm going to go seven. I'm going to go seven and a half, men of pure bodies out of ten. 
<laughs> shirts or no shirts? You know, off with their shirts. Are we going with that or? No, no. Just be men of pure bodies. Okay, so shirts. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, pretty much so. But anyways, that's going to do it for season two. Review <laughs> of Gallivant. Way to, way to make the ending weird. Oh, I just had to, I had to see how you'd react. Oh, Jesus Christ. Well done, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> but <laughs> come up next, it's Nerd News. we got a few topics this week. Of course, trying around the nerd world. We're going to find out what they are next. Stay tuned. Nerd News come up next. I'm Down Nerdy. Hi, this is Jamie Hale from Superdog. Uh, you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we go around the interweb and forgive George R.R. Martin because it's time for what, James? Nerd News! News. And, well, speaking of George R.R. Martin, our first story deals with the man himself. So he announced on his live journal account over the weekend that he failed to meet his December 31st deadline to finish his novel, The Winds of Winter. He also missed the first deadline, which was October 31st. Mm -hmm. And publishers are kind of pissed because they wanted the new book to be released in March a month before the show's sixth season premiere. Well, this so, is what happens when you go trick-or-treating for too long, and then you have too much grog and mead on New Year's Eve. Exactly. Yeah. And so why is it such a big deal? Well, if you're a fan of the books, the show's going to spoil some, some things for you. Yeah. Now, while fans have been compassionate in their response, a lot have written negative responses, which I love this, prompted Neil Gaiman himself to tell the, a reader, quote, George R.R. Martin is not your bitch. <laughs> which I love, and that's true. But at the same time, this is kind of what you fear as a fan, don't you? When you get to the point where something becomes so popular and there's such high demand for it that eventually this is going to happen when you've got a when you've got a interpretation of a novel coming to the screen, is that at some point the show is going to catch up or surpass the novelization, and at that point, what do you do? Well, here's the thing. I'm going to do a little bit of both here. As a somebody who, who hasn't read the books, somebody who just watches the show, um, I mean, this doesn't really affect me at all, really, but it does affect me later on where if this book isn't finished by the time, like, season seven or whatever rolls out, and they're like, okay, kind of need that book or else we're going to have to, like, shoot from the hip and create things of our own mm-hmm. and deviate. And that's the thing you worry about is the deviation from the material is if this book doesn't come out in t- on time. However... These books are like thousand pages a, p- a yeah, piece. Yeah, then there's that. And you know, and and R. R. Martin Prince said, you know, hey, there's only you know, there's, there's a few chapters that need to be finished, hundreds of pages. He's gonna get it done. It's just again, it, you know, it's that want factor. You know, we're, we've grown impatient. Right. Well, no doubt about that. And so it's like we want, we want, we want. But at the same time, it's like okay, George. Sooner or later, they're gonna run out of material for the show, and they're gonna right. be like, okay. Do we wait until he finishes it and put it on hold, which we know won't, can't happen because a lot of lost revenue right. from HBO will lose on that? Or B, do we say, okay, writers, write your own thing. Let's try to go off script a little bit until he finishes the book. And even then, you got to try to tie that into what happened. Yep. So it's 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 a tough position that, that George and, and even well, HBO is in right now. Well, I mean, think about this, too. You know how when you have something where the book comes out first, and this goes for a lot of things, Game of Thrones, Hunger Games, stuff like that, where the book comes out first, then the movie or show comes out, and then you see it like, oh, I can't believe they didn't include X, Y, or Z from the book. Well, now, here's the deal. This could kind of work out in a way because you're going to get the show first, it looks like. 
Yeah. So then the book comes out and maybe you get a little more detail for something that was in the show that you, when you saw it, you're like, ah, I wish we could have gotten more. Well, in the book, you do get more. So maybe it's that after effect approach that might kind of work out. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with a good excuse for George to put his feet up and finish this thing. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. And I mean, but again, we'll see what happens and how it affects the show and the fans going forward, especially George R. R. Martin, how it affects him going forward. But something that is kind of affecting me a little bit negatively right now is Tales from the Crypt. Now, TNT announced that M. Night Shyamalan is going to be rebooting Tales from the Crypt on TNT. Now, this is, of course, according to Deadline as well. And he's been tasked with creating a two-hour block of horror and suspense content. Now, I love Tales from the Crypt. I've seen pretty much almost every episode. Yep, love it. I mean, remember being a little kid, the, the opening fucking scared the hell out of me, opening credits, and it freaked me out. And oh, then, yeah. And then, uh, you know, especially if you grew up in the 90s, you know, and remember, I think it was the 90s, Tales from the Crypt Creeper, Creeper has his own game show on, like, Saturday mornings. Yeah, well, I mean, even growing up in the 80s like I did, that was kind of like your guilty pleasure when you were yeah. younger. The thing that you weren't supposed to watch, but oh, you yeah. kind of did anyway. I, I, remember, I remember being, like, 10, 11 years old, whatever, and Bordello of Blood and Demon Knight came out in theaters, and I wanted my dad to take me to see it. He's like, no, you can't take it to yep, see that's it. That's not happening, son. And, and uh, But uh, I'll say this. I love... Tales from the Crypt, and I don't want to mind them bringing it back, but M. Night Shyamalan, really? Like, like you couldn't have gotten... You know who I would have wanted? Either something from American Horror Story or Rob Zombie, because if you watch Devil's Rejects... I'm not sure Rob Zombie would be able to do it on TNT, though. But if you watch Devil's Rejects or House of a Thousand Corpses, I think he could do it. I think so. Can you know, he control himself? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I would think. <laughs> well, I mean, I kind of I get why they picked him because that's a name you're gonna know. But he's I not guess that's good. why they're doing it. I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I I totally agree with that. I mean, just because the you can't live off Sixth Sense forever, dude. You you well, just no, you can't. can't. Well, six nine. Well, Sixth Sense was great, but I mean, Unbreakable. I think after Unbreakable, that's when it started to slide down for him. Yeah, and to me, I. The, the worry for me is more that, and I've never been into the gore horror stuff, so I mean, I, I kind of like the creepy better, and that's a little bit of what M. Night Shyamalan does, but here's my problem with it. I, I'm worried that this is going to feel more like Twilight Zone than Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I feel like that's the kind of thing that M. Night Shyamalan does more, well, and I'm not sure that this is the right thing for him. Well, in a sense, Twilight Zone and Tales from the Crypt are kind of a little bit similar in the fact that both uh, episodes of both shows would have some sort of twist at the end of a, of a right. scenario. But or, the tonality overall, I feel oh, like it's different. Totally different. So oh that's God. why I'm not sure he's right for this. You know what I mean? And I know a lot of people just hate M night Shyamalan and anything you put his name on, they're going to, they're going to hate automatically. But I just feel like for the tonality of what tales of tales from the crypt should be. I just, I don't know. He's the guy. Yeah, like, I would love, like, I mean, the thing is, like, you look at the success of American Horror Story, like, we couldn't get one person from those, like... That would have been better, out. yeah. That would have been better. How many seasons are out? We couldn't get somebody from American Horror Story to do it? You don't like, need the main person, but pluck somebody from pluck that production somebody. staff. Well, plus, you can do, like, a Breaking Bad thing, where you have your, you know, you bring on a creator, like a showrunner, and then, you know, like, a Vince Gilligan or whatever that... Well, from- DC's okay. been doing that with but, their shows, yeah, too. Think about that. Yeah, directors every episode. 
Yeah, and they and they pull people from other successful shows to work on like Legends of Tomorrow and Supergirl. You know, they're keeping it within the family. Now I realize this is a different network, so it's not that simple. But look, again, if you're TNT and you see the success and especially the social media following that that show has, wouldn't you try to grab somebody from that show? And then your name is going to be American Horror Story. You don't need a name like M Night Shyamalan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But moving on to our next story, James, this is something that I know you want to rant off on. So Transformers, we love Transformers, right? Not the movies. We like the animated movie, but the older stuff. (laughs) But uh, Michael Bay, in an interview with Rolling Stone, pretty much said, yes, he is is going to be directing Transformers 5, but wait, there's more. He says it's going to be his last one. Then again, you remember... He also said he was going to be done after Age of Extinction. He's the Brett Favre of the Transformers universe. Yeah. And with that, I'll let you take the floor, Mr. Witham. See, I mean, do we not learn from our mistakes in this society anymore? When you see something get progressively worse, and and anybody that has listened to this show for more than 20 minutes should know that I will give pretty much anything the benefit of the doubt, and I like a lot of stuff. Okay, I'm not overly critical, I don't feel like, but every time I see the name Michael Bay and Transformers in the same sentence, I want to bang my head against the wall because I don't understand why they continue to give this guy the keys to the car when it's clear that he can't drive or park or steer. I mean, come on. I'll tell you why. Because he makes money. Because the movies make bank. And I don't argue with that at all, but I don't think it's him that makes bank. It's Transformers that makes bank, and he's admitted that several right. times. Well, it's all and he's not people. wrong. Well, it's mostly Alice says. It's mostly China because China yeah. fucking flocks to this. And also, the reason why they're making all these different Transformers movies, and don't be shocked if a lot of them are taking place in China because China gives a lot of money to fund the films, right. too. So, I, I don't know. I, I know I mean, they make money. I mean, you know, again... He's going to do this one, but I think at some point, because remember, they do have that new writer's room over there, and here's the thing. I think this might be his last one because I think after this one, the writer's room will take over, and they'll say, okay, thanks, Mike. Thanks for the boatloads of money you made the franchise. We're going to move on. Here's the thing that angers me, though, is that remember at the end of the last awful Transformers movie? Barely. Where Optimus Prime takes off, right? Yeah. He takes the he takes that item and takes off with it. And then as a Transformers fan, after sitting through that pile of garbage, you think, you know what? Maybe there's hope because maybe we're finally headed to Cybertron and we're gonna get a movie without the humans. We're gonna go up there, we're gonna do some cool stuff. Now I see this and I'm like, are we gonna have to sit through another Transformers movie before we finally get what as fans we kind of want? Out of this franchise, I don't want to have to sit through another Mark Wahlbergy version of Transformers until we get what we should have. Yeah, I can hear you there, but I mean, you know, again, we'll see what happens with that. I, listen, it's going to make a lot of money, but again, I think that after this one, the writers' room is going to take over. And I don't think we'll see Michael Bay directing another Transformers movie. And kids are going to love it, too. I get that. I am not. I mean, kids are are less critical, way less critical than we are. They're going to love it, too. So, 
you're tailoring it to that a little bit. I gave Michael Bay a pass on that with Turtles, and I actually enjoyed Turtles because I saw it for what it was. And maybe, I don't know, for Transformers 5, I'll try to do that. It's it's hard for me, man, because I was younger then, you know? Yeah. I was younger with Transformers than I was with Turtles, so I, I kind of hold it to a little bit of a different standard. You can't let go of that easily with Transformers. However, can you let go of $600 easily? No. <laughs> no? No. Even when it's for virtual reality? Mm, still no. Okay, so the reason why I'm saying this is because it was released a couple of days ago. That Oculus Rift, who which a lot of people at first thought, okay, it's gonna probably run about three, three fifty, you know. Nope, six hundred dollars. And guess what? You need to have a strong ass computer to use it. All right, I'm gonna take a very unpopular stance on this. Okay. Uh and you know, feel free to bash me on Twitter at James Ace with them if you like. But you know what, gamers, you've done this to yourself. You've set the market for stuff like this. And the reason I say that is, now granted, nothing should be ever be more expensive than the thing you're playing it on. But, you know, the gaming PCs, thousands of dollars. They have radiators now because of the power that you need on PC gaming. And I know it'll be different for PS4 and Xbox One because those are coming. And I, we'll, we'll get to that probably in a couple minutes. But think about what we're doing as a society of gamers now. We're paying huge money for these consoles or the PCs that we play the games on. Then you buy the game, which is easily 60 bucks, correct? Correct. And then, then what else do we got? We've got the DLCs. You know, you've got these special controllers now. All this different stuff. So, at the end of the day, even the LEGO Dimensions is a perfect example in Amiibo stuff. Because at the end of the day, you're spending $100 or more now on every game that's ridiculous well let me let me finish with what you're going to get with this so apparently the oculus says the rift is expected to ship in march but buying one will also get you an xbox one controller and two games which are lucky's tale and a valkyrie but again you're going to need a high-end pc if you actually want to play them right now here's what i think you might change your opinion on here okay creator palmer lucky has now defended the price point he tweeted to reiterate, quote, to reiterate, we are not making money on Rift hardware. High-end VR is expensive, but Rift is obscenely cheap for what it is. Then after someone tweeted him about them not needing an Xbox One controller, he's like, so how about instead of giving me an Xbox One controller, you maybe knock $60 off the price? And he pretty much says, controller costs us a tiny fraction of 60 bucks. Sell it for profit if you don't need it. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a douche thing that's to say. That's a dick move. Yeah, that's a douchebag thing to say. I see virtual reality the same way I saw it in the 90s, where it was a, it was a thing and then it left, and I see it the same way as, as CDIs, man. Well, I mean, I guess the skeptic in me says, how good could it really be? But yeah, we haven't tried it. You know what? I, well, yeah, and that's it. I, I would have to try it to know. I would have to actually... And, and the two games you're getting, are they really... You know, games that you would fall all over yourself for? Probably not. But, no. I mean, it's a good test, I guess, for the Oculus. I just feel like... I mean, the experience is already pretty good in gaming, I think. I don't know that strapping a helmet on is going to change that a whole lot. Well, here's lot. the thing, too, is we wear glasses. So how's that yeah, going to affect us? And that could be part of the problem. And the stereotype well, of the nerds thing. being what is what it is, hopefully they uh, you know, put that in consideration. But here's the thing, though, is that investors are also kind of saying, well, that's kind of what we didn't expect to be for price range, you know? like 
Well, and, and am I saying it's too expensive? Am I not saying it's too expensive? Of course it's too expensive. I mean, I'm not saying that. I just, I see that, I think that this price point is to see if they can get away with it. But here's the problem. Here's is what a, I'm saying. But here's a big gamble, though, is that this is virtual reality. This isn't like you're releasing like as much flack as I believe the PS3 got when they said, oh, it's going to be like $600 or whatever like that, you know, when it was first announced. There's a slow ramp for virtual reality. Like, well, there's a slight, right. you know, it's not like, okay, here's a new console, here you go. This is virtual reality. This is a, it's a peripheral. Let's just say what it is. It's right, peripheral. but I don't think that they separate that. See, I think that's the crazy thing here is that I think that these people that are designing this hardware don't see it that way. I think that they kind of view this as a console but in the and, end, not, it, and a peripheral. I agree with you, it, but I don't think they feel that way. And in the end, they need, they, it is. It's, to me, VR right now, especially with the Oculus Rift, it is, I look at the same way I look at the Wii, where, okay, it's fun to play, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to play my PlayStation 7 of a Wii for X amount of things. I only play a Wii if, like, you know, you got friends over, family, right. whatever. Right, You know, because everybody can play that. But, you know, it's, again, it's like, you know, it's like, can you really, you know what I'm saying? Like, what other No, I totally agree. And, and here's the it's deal. Gonna have, it's going to have a, it's going to have... Like Star Wars Battlefront. It's going to have so many course, hours you can yeah. play it until it's like, okay, this is done. This is stupid. You know, whatever. And here's the deal. Remember when 3D movies came out and that was supposed to be revolutionizing the movie industry and that was going to be the huge thing and everybody was going to want to have it in their home and go see it in the theaters. Now, 3D movies still exist, but it was not nearly the boon that the movie industry thought it was going to be, and now 4K seems to be the thing that people are more interested in. And I feel like virtual reality could fall into the same hole where once, like you said, that cool factor is gone after the first X amount of hours, we're just going to see these collecting dust on shelves, even in stores, and then that's when the price point's going to drop, just like the uh, Xbox Motion did it when connects, that was overpriced. Yeah. Connect, yeah. Connect, and, the, and even PlayStation Move. You know, or what yeah, I called. think that that's I think that's exactly what could end up happening here. I think that they're overestimating the cool factor, and I think I, I really hope for their sake that they've brought I mean really brought something to this because that's the only thing I can see that would save it. And that's going to do it for nerd news this week. But come up next, we have an interview with Tim Truman, who is of course the writer for King Conan: Wolves Beyond the Borders. He's coming next here on Down Nerdy. Hey, this is Robert Venditti, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, when you hear the name Conan, it is synonymous with a great warrior. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of great Conan stories out there, but one that really stuck out to Nick and I was King Conan from Dark Horse. We're very happy to have the writer along with us. It's Tim Truman. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you hey, doing? Oh, it's good, Tim. So how was your uh, New Year's, and what kind of big resolutions did you make for this year? I no, I make no resolutions. I make no promises to anyone or myself. So. <laughs> I do the same. I did the same thing. I'm like, you know what? Resolutions, nah. <laughs> right. Lucky, lucky uh, enough to have uh, my son Ben Truman visiting from Tucson, and uh, we've been working on a few things together. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a pretty good year so far. Oh, we're definitely going to be talking about that a little bit later on. But first, let's talk about King Conan, because you've actually done a number of King Conan stories uh, over yeah. the years. So what is it about the character that you love? Oh, God. Conan was my, you know, like the first fictional character that I absolutely fell in love with when I was like, you know, 11 years old. So um, 
it's just always been a pleasure to work on Conan, King Conan and the Conan books and all that. I've been doing them for like 10 years now for Dark Horse, which is like the longest that I've ever been associated with a continuing character. I usually do special projects in my own miniseries and things like that. So you begin issue one of King Conan Wolves Beyond the Border with an amazing conflict within a bar, and it's really grabbed my attention. I know it grabbed James' attention as well. Uh, so how important is it as a writer to capture a reader's attention early on in a book like this, in a series like this, especially when a series is only four parts? Well, it's real important, especially in the uh, case of Conan and King Conan, because, um, of course, he's a, <laughs> one of the preeminent action characters in the history of fiction. So um, it's really important to just grab them from the get-go. And uh, With that particular issue, we wanted to start with um, the feeling that Conan is becoming really, really discontented with um, being a king. I mean, he's been a, you know, he's been a uh, warrior and adventurer all, all of his life. And uh, we, we wanted to set up the fact that he's kind of missing his old life mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, he's really getting into a phase where he's moving on to uh, the next phase of his life and which happens to be a phase that uh, Robert E. Howard the original you know creator of Conan only hinted at in letters to uh, a couple of his fans so uh, kind of getting ready for a next go over the next hump, you know? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting as the series goes on. Of course, issue two comes out January 27th. Now, in the book, we actually see a lot of the ruthless King Conan, like we were talking about, but we also kind of see more of a kind-hearted side, especially to one character in particular. So, with a character like that that's so strong and fierce, how hard is it to balance those two sides of his personality? There's kind of a, a rule of thumb that I use. Conan respects those who earn his respect, and he also protects those who become part of his pack. And uh, so he's got two soldier characters who are who definitely proven themselves and, are, and have become part of his, his entourage. And that's something that uh, Robert E. Howard, that's a character trait that Robert E. Howard firmly establishes, you know, within the various short stories and the one Conan novelette that he did. So that's, the ruthless side in this, in the case of this story, comes from mainly comes from his discontent. He's just itching for a fight, and uh, so that's you know that beginning sequence is uh, oriented in that. In fact, he's got one of his friends quite worried about his hair trigger temper. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we get so the, so, so pretty that. much, you're aiming for more like a, a Conan that pretty much has feels like he has nothing really to lose. Like he's lived his life, so he doesn't come out swinging pretty much in the end. Yeah, I mean, well, he's he's lived his life and he wants to continue living it. And I, I think in this case, he's he's just real tired of sitting on the throne and doing, you know, doing mm -hmm. king stuff. And something I want to highlight, too, also in issue one. So Conan is handed, of course, it's also on the cover of the book as well, a, a Pictish crown, which uh, pretty much tormented its last owner with visions and certain messages. And so he gives it to Conan, and Conan sees these messages as well and, and something towards him and it's really a turning point in the comic so what kind of mental battles will we get to see with Conan and maybe other characters as the book progresses well uh, one of the main things that happens in the book is that uh, Conan has always 
had these uh, enemies. His his uh, Conan's Sumerian civilization that he that he grew up in has has always been enemies with um, a group of primitives called the Picts, and uh, so he finds himself in a situation where he has to ally with these ancient enemies, and uh, so he. Um, there's something compelling him to do that. And so he has these inner battles about exactly how far he wants to go with it and how far he should ally himself with these picks. There's a female Pictish witch who will be seeing in upcoming issues who uh, I actually created for the series, I don't know, within the first year or two that I was working on it. And she's a Pictish witch named Nye. And She's, she actually befriended him, and he learned to respect her. And uh, so um, she is forming the catalyst for this alliance, and uh, she's convinced him that it's in his best interest to uh, ally himself with, these, with the picks, with his enemies. We're talking to Tim Truman of King Conan, Wolves Beyond the Borders. Number one is available now at your local comic shop and online through Dark Horse. And issue two comes out January 27th. So, Tim, you mentioned battles. And a big battle we get to see through the crown is this war that raged between the Picts and the Atlanteans. And will, and if so, how will issue two build upon the rivalry and that moment in, in history between the two rivals there? Well, we, uh, issue two is really pretty much a full tilt, all out action issue. A lot of really dark and dirty stuff happens in, in that particular issue. And let's see here. He, how can I say this? I don't want to reveal too much, but <laughs> of um, course. Yeah. 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 This, this crown that he ends up acquiring in issue one turns out to be a, a crown that, uh, Robert E. Howard tells us was, uh, actually manufactured by an ancient Pictish warrior from, you know, thousands and thousands of years before Conan's time. And that Pictish, Pictish warrior was um, Bull the Spear Slayer, who appears, he's the right-hand man of another one of Howard's characters, King Call, which is one of his most famous characters. Mm -hmm. And in the King Call stories, we learn that he gave it to Brule the Spear Slayer. And Brule the Spear Slayer, uh, as a result, embedded this gem into a crown, and the crown has been the crown of the High King of the Picts. Right. Right. Through the ages. And later on, during the Roman, during um, the Bran MacMorn stories that Robert E. Howard wrote, we see the crown appear. And it's also explained in those stories, you know, how, how the crown came to be, that it was uh, basically Cole's gift to the picked Brule. And I'd always wondered, like, how the crown was handed down from pick to pick to pick, you know, mm. through thousands of years, and, and how Bran McMorn actually ended up acquiring it. And so I came up with, with a story whereby it's actually Conan who's the catalyst for that. And oh, wow. the, uh, the paradox there is that as I mentioned earlier, Conan has always been an enemy of the uh, Picts. Mm -hmm. So I thought there'd be some interesting sort of, you know, conflict there since since uh, the two races were always 
um, at war with each other. At least after picked after uh, Brule and Call's time, because of course Brule and Call were fast friends. So the crowds actually meant as a um, symbol of brotherhood between the non-Pictish races and the Atlantean races of um, Call, who became Conan's race. So anyway, it's kind of like them trying to make amends and get back together. Oh, definitely. It's funny that you mentioned time, because, I mean, it, when you have a clear love for a character like you have for this one, I'm sure that your mind tends to wander every now and then, so if you could write a Conan story that placed him in any other time period but his own, where would it be and why? I don't know. Actually, Howard did that at one point, and it's one of my least favorite uh, stories. He had uh, Bran McMorn and Call and Conan actually join together through the power of the crown, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but Conan, to me, he belo- he's so firmly centered in this Sumerian age, you know, the, the Hyborian age, mm-hmm. um, uh, that his adventures are placed in, that it's really hard for me to imagine him anywhere else. That's somebody that really loves the character right there. I mean, I mean, you could just tell that you, you're really just a, a big fan of the character, and I'm sure getting to write that character is a huge honor for you. But speaking of huge honors, like you were like we were talking about um, off the air when you and I were emailing back and forth actually setting up the interview, we were very excited about a project that you're working on with your son, which I'm sure is very special for you. So for anyone who might not know, tell us a little bit more about that project. Well, years ago, I mean, I built my reputation on two series, uh, Grimjack, and also a series that I later wrote and drew for Eclipse Comics, which was Scout. And uh, people have asked me over the years, you know, to when the next Scout miniseries coming about. And uh, so I finally decided to do it. And my son, Ben, and I had worked uh, about three years ago on a Western horror comic called Hawkin for IDW, which was a creator-owned title. Mm-hmm. And um, I just had such a great time working with Ben that we wanted to do another big project, and I decided that I would bring Scout back. And so Ben will be, will be doing the story together. Ben will be scripting it, and I'll be doing the artwork. And uh, we'll be handling it. Uh, you know, we're going to be doing it through Patreon uh, the Patreon website. The reason I wanted to do that is because I've always had this dream of uh, somehow allowing readers to be with me from the get-go, like for, and see the mm-hmm. uh, story develop from soup to nuts. So uh, Patreon seemed to allow the absolute perfect opportunity and means to do that. So we'll be uh, anybody who becomes one of our patrons will be able to see the comic, you know, like no matter what, but, and they'll be the first ones to see it online. And, uh, then there'll be different levels where you can actually have access to the pencils and inks, uh, tutorial videos, uh, feedback. We'll have an online, you know, live streaming chats. And, uh, I'll also be having the feeds where I'll just be training a camera on my drawing desk and people can be watching me ink. Um, we're trying to set it up so they can even ask me questions as I work. 
and stuff like that. So it's pretty exciting. Wow, well, that's pretty yeah. awesome. That's really and, detailed. Uh, and I love I love it when uh, you know writers and artists do stuff like that. They give the inside look of like how the process is, and it's mm-hmm. it's it is a very beautiful thing too. By the way, oh, good thanks. <laughs> oh, you're, very, you're very welcome. So before we get you out of here, Tim, uh, where can people hit you up on social media or on the web? Okay, I have a website, www.timothytruman.com. I also have a Facebook page where uh, people can friend me and keep up to date. And then uh, through those two, um, the, the Patreon page is going to be called Truman Studio. And uh, I'll be keeping people up to date. Uh, about when we're going to launch that. We're right now. It looks like a late February launch. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully we can have everything in process by then. My son and I. My son, like I say, Ben's visiting from Tucson this week. Uh, so um, we've been doing some videos and things like that for the for the website, and uh, just trying to get it all together to to do a big launch, make it worth people's while. Definitely. And for anybody that doesn't know about Scout, it's actually been around for a while. You can actually find that on Tim's website. Also, don't forget, Dark Horse's King Cone and Wolves Beyond the Border, number one available right now at your local shop and digitally at darkhorsecomics.com. And, of course, issue two, January 27th. We can't wait for that. We want to thank Tim Truman. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about all the great things you've got going on. Oh, man, thanks. Uh, you know, thanks for contacting me and... Uh... Hope people will enjoy the stuff that's coming up. You know, James, I think in the history of any really mythological character, especially someone like you know, in the realm of a Red Sonia or Conan, I've never met anybody so in love and just really caring about the Conan character as much as Tim, man. I mean, that was just an amazing interview and just the love and the passion that he has for Conan. And that's who you want working with characters like this. I mean, this guy knew stuff about Conan that I might not even know about my favorite characters. I mean, he's just so in love. And when I asked him a question about where would he put Conan, he couldn't even fathom Conan being in any other time period than the one that he's in right now, which I think is great because if you love a character that much, I guess, yeah, that's kind of how but you should feel. But not just that. And not just that, but when we, during the interview, what, was, what were we doing? We were ta- asking about the book, and he, what, a lot of the, his answers included, well, you know, this this writer from this book and this writer from this Conan yep. book, like he, he others, he, he brought in other famous Conan source material, and it's like this is a guy you know. We talk about writers, we love it when they study the stuff, man, we, and they have a yeah. passion. And this book, it shows. I mean, you know, we got this book. We're look reading. We're like, wow, the art is beautiful. It's you know, the writing is really captivating, and it's a four part series. And I'm like, man, I, I'm hooked. Like it's it's got me in there. It was like talking to a Conan encyclopedia. Yeah. It really was, because not only did you get something about the book, like you were saying from now, but you also got, like, all the history that led up to what's happening. And he's talking about characters he's bringing back from, like, the first couple of years when he wrote King Conan. This is ten years he's been doing this. I know. For Dark Horse. So, you're going to bring a character back from that far. To me, that's just cool. And it's smart, too, because it makes you want to go back to all those other series and read those, too. Exactly, man. I mean, I, I I I love the series. I can't wait for issue two to come out later this month. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be a great series overall. But that's gonna do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. As we move ever so closer to episode one hundred, we're trying to get some big things planned for that episode. So stay oh, tuned yeah. for updates. Yeah. Oh, but I again, can't say anything. I thanks can't. to no, we can't. But thanks to Tim Truman, of course, you can pick up King Conan 
Wolves Beyond the Border number one, which is available now in your local comic book shops and line at darkhorsecomics.com. Issue two comes out January 27th. And also, we're on social media ourselves. You can hit us up at downnerdy757 on Twitter, facebook.com slash downnerdy. On Twitter, I'm at Merkel One Arm, Mr. Witham. I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W I T H A M. As a matter of fact, don't forget. We're online as well, pot at downandnerdypodcast.com. And you can find our Twitter stuff there if you say, ah, I can't remember that guy's Twitter handle. It's in the About Us section. You can go in there and, and follow us on there as well. You can find out a little bit about us, about the show. Everything about this week's show, actually. Week to week, we give you a little breakdown of what's on the show. You're like, oh, they're reviewing that? Awesome. And you can just play the show, and you'll know what's going to be coming up. Of course, we don't give everything away, but you'll at least get an idea. And you can actually buy, like, hey, you go to our website right now. You want to buy King Conan? Digitally, boom, got it right there for you, safe and sound from our Amazon store. It's just that simple. Exactly, man. I mean, and again, you know, thanks to Tim, thanks to Dark Horse for coming on. You know, again, hit us up on social media. Also on our website, we have two different comic book reviews we do from the show itself. Of course, they're written and they're nice, easy reads, about three to four paragraphs long, quick reads. But hey, we highlight what we liked about a certain book. We might not have liked. And also, of course, we get our famous buy, pickups, and drop ratings at the bottom of the screen for after the reviews are finished. But again, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Downerity Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I leave you with this. Pray safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.